As wild and crazy as the Trump presidency has been so far, this week we officially start a new chapter, likely to be wilder and even more unpredictable. A Democratic-controlled House has taken office, armed with subpoena power, and determined to conduct relentless investigations of his administration. At the same time, prosecutors for Robert Mueller and the Southern District in New York still have open criminal investigations into the conduct of the president and his close associates. And as if that wasn't enough, an old frenemy from the past, Mitt Romney, has just sent a shot across the bow, declaring the president's character, quote, falls short, and vowing to, quote, speak out against significant statements that are divisive, racist, sexist, anti-immigrant, dishonest, or destructive to democratic institutions. That's a pledge that, if he's true to it, could keep Romney pretty busy and possibly signal a Republican primary challenge in 2020. How will these threats to the Trump presidency play out? We'll discuss with a key Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee and with a longtime Romney watcher on this episode of Skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just say Russia yes no is a ruse. I'm Michael Isagoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So it is the dawn of a new era. The Democrats, uh, at least in the House, are in power. And um, I got to say, it's starting off a little bit rocky. Uh, we have the continued impasse on the government shutdown and the border wall. No uh, give on either side. So this could go on for a while. And Pelosi spent so much time trying to tamp down expectations about impeachment and investigations, yet she starts out giving an interview to the Today Show saying impeachment is not off the table. And then, bang, this new uh, progressive Democrat from uh, Michigan, uh, Rashida Tlaib, goes to a move on uh, event and says, uh, quote, we're going to impeach the motherfucker. Yeah. Pelosi, she, I think, was masterful in opposition in terms of keeping her troops fairly disciplined and during the midterm election where they really focused on substantive issues like health care and, and the economy. And I think this just goes to show that now that the Democrats are in power and that these candidates are no longer running but have been elected, they feel emboldened. They are going to give their base what they want. And it's just going to be harder and harder to sort of herd these cats. And it's going to be a real challenge to Nancy Pelosi's, you know, ability to to hold the the caucus together and to not overreach on these issues. So it's right. going to be fun to watch. 
Uh, fun to watch. And of course, we have the, the you know, the huge wild cards uh, out there, the Mueller investigation. Is there a final report about to come or any more cases he's about to bring? And of course, the ongoing investigation by the uh, Southern District into the campaign finance violations that Michael Cohen has already pled to. So we've got a lot to talk about. And I would and, say before, uh, just one okay. kind of dark horse here that doesn't get quite as much attention, but could be really significant. And that is the uh, House Ways and Means Committee chairman, Richard Neal from Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. has promised that he is going to pursue Donald Trump's tax returns. There is an obscure provision in the tax code that allows uh, House Ways and Means, the tax writing committee of the Congress, and I believe there are other committees as well, to ask for those uh, records. He would have to ask the Secretary of the Treasury, uh, Steve Mnuchin. That will that will uh, he he is not going to gladly turn uh, oh, that sure information Mnuchin over. Will eagerly turn over Trump's tax returns. But there the, will uh, be there'll be litigation. This will be tested, and of course, Donald Trump's tax returns are the holy grail of all investigators because uh, that's how you show all of the financial entanglements, money laundering and more about the relationship with the Russians and potentially even the Saudis. So there's going to be a lot of meat here. Well, look, I'm a little skeptical about whether the tax returns are going to show as much as people would like them to show, but they certainly are a baseline that you know all presidential candidates before Donald Trump always had to disclose. He refused, so it's going to be an interesting test case when Neil goes down that route. But look, we got a lot to get to and uh, a great uh, guest to start out with. Eric Swalwell of Iowa. So let's get to it. We're now joined by Congressman Eric Swalwell, uh, a uh, frequent guest on Skullduggery. Um, So, Congressman, welcome back. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Thanks, Dan. So how does it feel to be in power? Well, you know, it's liberating for the last two years, you know, frankly, have felt quite powerless, especially in the House Intelligence Committee, uh, where we just saw the shovels come out every time, you know, new evidence was uh, discovered in the Russia investigation, and they just sought to bury it. And so it just feels like, you know, the voters gave us the ability to unearth that evidence and, uh, you know, bring it to light for the American people. And I'm, I'm excited about what that means for the job that we have to do ahead. Well, look, we are uh, very focused on those issues uh, on Skullduggery here, so let's get right to it. You're on both House Intel and Judiciary, two of the most important committees for investigating all matters relating to the president. Give us your sense of what the agenda is going to be right off the bat. For both Intel and Judiciary, where do you want to see the committees begin? Where do you want to see the investigations to unearth all that buried material to start. Well, you know, with the Russia investigation, you know, we don't we don't want to be redundant. We don't want to do anything that Bob Mueller is doing. But there are a lot of uh, lines of inquiry that we don't believe Mueller is going to pursue, particularly money laundering. So we will open up a you know money laundering inquiry as to whether the Russians were laundering money through the Trump organization. And to use a prosecutor's phrase, I think we have probable cause to do that based on the Trump's own. Uh, the Trump family's own admissions that they had money coming in from Russia. Then we will fill in the gaps where, you know, we tried to follow evidence and either the Republicans would not subpoena bank records, hotel records, telecommunications logs, and we will subpoena those logs. And then where witnesses came in and, and stood on, you know, 
made up or invented uh, privileges, uh, you know, we will force their hand on those issues and, and be willing to litigate where the Republicans were not. So I'm, again, not going to be redundant, not seeking a pound of flesh. Uh, I think just filling in the color where, you know, we were not allowed to go uh, in the past. Congressman, let's just flesh out just for a minute the money laundering allegations or suspicions you're talking about. And I think you're talking specifically about Deutsche Bank, which was yes. uh, the president's uh, lender before he was president. So talk a little bit about that and tell us what that probable cause yeah. is. So I think you have on both sides here you know, of the ledger, you have the Lendee, uh, you know, the, the Trump organization, uh, you know, who has received loans from Deutsche Bank, they have said that they've had money coming in from Russia. And then you have the lender, Deutsche Bank, who's been fined in the past for laundering Russian money. I think that was through the New York attorney general. So there is good reason to look there knowing uh, the eagerness and willingness that the Trump team, whether it was uh, the business side with Michael Cohen and Felix Sater trying to do a business deal in Moscow, or the political side taking meetings from Russians who are offering you know, to provide dirt. So I, I think there's reason, good reason to look. So what does this mean in practice? You, you say you want to open up a money laundering investigation, starting with Deutsche Bank. So subpoenas to Deutsche Bank and the Trump organization for their finances going back you know, I, how I far? Wanna, because a lot of these, yeah, a lot of these uh, uh, transactions took place 10 years ago or longer. So give me an idea specifically of what kind of, are we talking subpoenas? exactly to who? And one more matter, do you have Chairman Schiff's consent on this? Is he on board with going in this direction right off the bat? Yeah. And so first, I, I don't want to speak for Chairman Schiff. I, I can just kind of uh, support what he has already said publicly, which he does believe there's you know reason to pursue the money laundering line of inquiry uh, here. Now, I, I also don't want to speak with him as far as the tactics of doing that, but the practice uh, from our side has been to seek information voluntarily first. Uh, I think that's always a good practice, not to come in so hot with subpoenas. If people are willing to cooperate, take their cooperation and don't make it so adversarial. If they're not willing to cooperate and it's information you can't obtain anywhere else, then yes, you know you do have the power of subpoena. And then, you know, as far as you know, how many years back does it go? Well, we know that you know you have evidence in the early 2000s of uh, of Trump properties being purchased by Russians. So the Trump interest in Russia and the Russia interest in Trump does go back decades. And then from my perspective, I would want to know, you know, where did the financial compromise begin? What was the genesis uh, of that? Um, so specifically, then, you begin with letters to Deutsche Bank and the Trump Organization asking for their records about, in the case of the Trump Organization, any transactions with Russians or Russian institutions and Deutsche Bank about all their loans to the uh, Trump Organization. So that could take quite some time if you're starting out with letters just asking for their records. You're not likely to get instant cooperation, certainly from the Trump organization. So walk us through how you expect this to be playing out. Well, it's not going to happen in a CSI you know, episode. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, you're talking about years uh, of records years of relationships that the Trump family uh, has had. But it's more important, I think, to me and, and members of the committee to get this right and to be comprehensive than to just pull one thread that is sizzling and scores a headline 
and embarrasses the president. That I don't I don't think any of us are interested in doing. I think we want to have a comprehensive picture of whether or not the president is financially compromised by the Russians. But if you if you start out with a letter asking for the records of the Trump organization, you know that's crossing the president's red line. It's immediately going to blow up. He'll respond in Twitter. They're not going to cooperate and it'll it immediately look like exactly what you say you don't want it to look like, yeah. which is an investigation aimed directly at the president. Again, not to speak for Mr. Schiff and the, the tactics that will be used, but we believe that there's good reason to look at whether there was money laundering uh, you know, through the Trump organization. And uh, you know, whether it's a voluntary letter or a subpoena, we are going to seek to follow evidence that is already out there. Congressman, let me ask you about an investigative step uh, that I think the committee could take immediately, which, is, which relates to the Trump Tower meeting, which I think you referred to before. One of the kind of lingering mysteries about that episode is the so-called blocked telephone call, uh, Don Jr. making a phone call to a, a blocked number, some suspicion that he was calling Donald Trump, uh, his father, and that uh, he was informing him about this meeting or reporting back to him about it. So that's information that the Republican majority on the Intelligence Committee did not pursue. You can pursue it. You can get it from the telephone company really quickly. Are you doing that? We should pursue it. And we laid out in our minority views that that's evidence we want. So I think you can you know, assume that that uh, will be sought. Here's my fear, because I don't want to see expectations you know, through the roof here and we're not able to deliver. As a former prosecutor, I know that you know, telecommunication companies, they don't hold these records ad infinitum. They actually just, in the orderly course of business, destroy records. And oftentimes that's six to 12 months after the record uh, is made. So my fear is that inaction by the House Republicans will limit just exactly what we can obtain as far as text messages, cell phone calls that were made. So, but, you know, that is one that we want to get. And I think, you know, what the president knew from his son about that meeting uh, is critical uh, to our understanding of what they intended to do with the Russians. How about hearings into the core matters in the Russia investigation itself? Are you simply going to wait for Mueller and his report, or are you going to move ahead and call witnesses who have already been sentenced now and pled out, like Michael Cohen, first and foremost, Michael Flynn, although his sentencing was delayed, certainly his case has now been fully processed. Are you going to start out calling some of these witnesses? So, you know, Michael, I I can tell you, we want the public to know as much as they can. And I I think this will be different than the underground meetings where the transcripts have still not been released, you know, from the past Congress. Uh, And and hopefully those transcripts in this new Congress will be out uh, very, very soon. So uh, again, I I don't want to speak for Mr. Schiff. I just know that, you know, from his statements to us and statements publicly, he wants there to be a lot more transparency. And I I think the nation will learn and benefit from hearing from some of these witnesses who did have insights as to what was the president's knowledge? What was his direction? Did he say, no, don't do that. We don't work with a foreign adversary. Or was he giving those offerings a green light? Have you had communications with Mueller's office about whether they would object to you calling Michael Cohen and Michael Flynn or any other key witnesses in the Russia investigation? So that I cannot say uh, yes or no, one way or another. I'd love to go into that, but I I just can't go there. Congressman, one of the uh, things that you were frustrated about and you've expressed this uh, is that when witnesses have come up before the committee, 
the Republicans, when they were in the majority, essentially told these witnesses that they didn't have to answer certain questions. And the one I'm thinking of is Jared Kushner. And you talked before about money laundering, about being compromised by the money that was coming in. Jared Kushner could answer a lot of those questions. Are you going to call him back? Well, again, he, he did not give a comprehensive, uh, or he, he was not subjected to a, a thorough interview because he was let off the hook because the Republicans told him, hey, this is voluntary. We're not bringing you under subpoena. You can go. And what do you think he did? He, he fled. Um, but I, I also think, you know, there's going to be, we're not going to allow witnesses who have lied to rehabilitate themselves. I, I don't think that is the intent here. So I don't see any purpose in bringing witnesses back who have not been cooperative or who have lied just to allow them to clean up their bullshit stories. I, I don't think that is going uh, to happen. But again, I don't want to speak for Mr. Schiff. With Jared Kushner, uh, there was a lot left you know, that we wanted to have answered, but that's Mr. Schiff's call. Do you believe he lied or you just think he stonewalled or didn't, didn't answer because he was let off the hook by the Republicans? I don't think we had the opportunity truly to you know, know whether he was being truthful or not. I mean, right. we, it was about two hours and 45 minutes, split that between Republicans and Democrats. Republicans asked him all of nothing. You know, so we were just getting into it when he realized from the Republicans it was a voluntary uh, interview. Right. But again, that, well, that's Mr. Schiff's call on you know, whether well, he comes back. When do you expect Mueller's report? I, I don't think anyone knows, uh, honestly. Uh, he, again, when you just look at what I can tell you from the witnesses we've interviewed, the limited records we've been able to see, is that you have a campaign, a business, and a family who for a very long time had personal, political, and financial interests in Russia, and the Russians had personal, political, and financial interests in the family, the business and the political operation, and untangling that through the hotel records, the trips over to Russia, the Russians who were in the United States, uh, the bank records, the text messages, the you know signal logs, you're going to have to go through a lot of that and then confront witnesses once you get those records, and then kind of compare those witness accounts to each other, and then maybe bring witnesses back a couple times. I mean, when you look at, you know, Michael Flynn was interviewed, I, I think it's upward of 20 times uh, by special counsel. Michael Cohen spent dozens of hours with special counsel. You see that they are thoroughly going through so many records that, you know, I I think they're moving expeditiously, but uh, I don't think anyone wants them to produce an incomplete report. But I got to say, this does sound like a protracted investigations you're talking about here, which could well That's because you you live in the Twitter age now, Michael, where we expect (laughs) updates every 20 minutes. And I just I don't think they can move that fast, even with, you know, the team that they have. And uh, as much as I want information, I just go back to being a prosecutor and sending a subpoena to Facebook or YouTube or Google and then just you know, kind of getting annoyed that it was taking so long, you know, for them to comply because these organizations, even if it's with a subpoena, they can litigate it, they can fight it, they can limit it. And so exactly. it just all takes Exactly time. my point, that this is what you're really outlining is, you know, frankly, it sounds to me like another two years of investigations. Uh, and you've already had two years since uh, House Intel yeah. first announced it was going to be investigating this. And obviously, but I don't think the president your- should get the benefit of, like, he had so many contacts that it's taken us so long to untangle <laughs> them that he should get off the hook for that, right? Okay. Like, it's not okay. like you don't want to reward but- him because... 
you know, made such a mess or I think I think of the scene, Michael, I don't know if you one of my favorite Christmas movies is Christmas Vacation, you know, the one with Chevy Chase and he's taking out the Christmas lights from the garage and hands them to his son Russ and it's in this just big, massive, tangled ball and he says, Here, you know, untangle these. I think that's kind of what the Mueller team is doing is untangling this just big ball of Christmas lights and trying to, you know, figure out where it ends. Congressman, um, uh, one area that I think you've talked about, uh, one line of inquiry that I think you've talked about wanting to pursue uh, is whether Trump's financial interests with the Saudis may have compromised him as uh, commander in chief and influenced our policy toward the Saudis. And obviously, one example of that would be what many view as his kind of accommodationist stance toward Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi crown prince, after the murder and dismemberment of Jamal Khashoggi. So tell us a little bit about what you plan to pursue there. And I guess my question is, at this point, what's the most compelling evidence that you can cite that those financial interests have driven his policy toward the Saudis? Well, first, we should not assume that Donald Trump has a monotonous relationship with the Russians and that they're the only country that he would seek to go in with and, you know, I think betray American values. I was probably guilty of thinking that in the beginning. And then in real time, we've seen this Khashoggi incident play out and the president has been completely incapable, uh, I think, of asserting American values. But I, I would go back to, again, that when he was in financial distress, he saw whether it was his Plaza Hotel in New York or, you know, a yacht that he had, that, you know, the Saudis, you know, had money and were able to bail him out. And then he becomes president. The first foreign trip that he makes is over Saudi Arabia. You have a narcissistic personality and they're throwing him this just massive welcome ceremony. And I think you can, we all can see why he would kind of gravitate toward them. Of course, flattery, now, flattery isn't, isn't, a, isn't a criminal act. No, and it's, it, but feeling you know, financially obligated to somebody or seeing a future financial opportunity from somebody, you know, that uh, may not be criminal, but that is not, I think, how any of us would want the president of the United States to act. So now you have a U.S. resident who works for a U.S. publication who's murdered on a NATO ally's soil. And again, where you would expect the president to stand up for human rights, the free press, he really has not. He's Just as he was incapable, uh, you know, so befuddling to us of standing up to Putin, you're seeing the same thing with the crown prince, where he's kind of giving this moral equivalence uh, argument, uh, you know, saying the world's a very dangerous place. Uh, well, that's that's just contra to Republican and Democratic presidents of the past, which makes so me wanna, wonder, do you is this really about the money? the president's relationship with the Saudis? I'm sorry, say that again? Do you want to investigate the president's relationship with the Saudis? What I would like to know is, you know, again, and you could see this through his tax returns, you could see this through bank records, you know, whether, you know, there is an ongoing relationship financially with the Saudis. And also then we have this report that the Saudis purchased very early on in the the transition of his presidency and the, you know, early days of his presidency, uh, you know, hundreds of hotel rooms at the Trump uh, Hotel in Washington, D.C. Again, from everything I know, from the interviews we've done and the public reports that are out there, Donald Trump checks in on his businesses almost on a daily basis to see you know, how they're doing, who's purchasing rooms, etc. And if he knows the Saudis are doing that, again, he may feel financially obligated mm-hmm. to them. 
you know, we talked about uh, the uh, investigations and how these could be protracted. Now, some of your uh, new colleagues don't want to wait for the outcome <laughs> I of know such where this investigations. Is going. <laughs> uh, and so we want to play you a clip that made some uh, news oh. from last night. Uh, your new uh, colleague from Michigan, Rashida Taib, Taib uh, was asked, was making some comments to move on. I think we have the clip. Uh, why don't you listen and then tell us your thoughts? People love you and you win. And when your son looks at you and says, mama, look, you won, bullies don't win. And I said, baby, they don't because we're gonna go in there, we're gonna impeach the motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Congressman Swalwell, your uh, reaction. Yeah, not not how I would say it, not how I do it, but certainly a sentiment that I hear from a lot of my constituents. And what I wanna do, you know, on the Judiciary and Intelligence Committee with, you know, Chairman Schiff and uh, Nadler is to give Donald Trump a fairer investigation than he probably deserves. Because at the end of the day, I think the strength of our democracy will be whether we preserve the rule of law. And that also applies to the people who will have to investigate uh, this president. One uh, story that got a lot of attention last week was a McClatchy report saying that there was uh, cell phone and tower evidence that Michael Cohen had, in fact, uh, made a trip to Prague during the 2016 election, as alleged in the Steele dossier. The dossier says he met there with uh, Russian uh, officials to talk about paying off hackers from everything you've seen and know. Do you believe this report? You know, I I hope this does not become, you know, an Amelia Earhart-like mystery, whether Michael Cohen went to Prague or not. It would seem with the digital dust that people leave behind today that it is a knowable fact. I believe that the Mueller team probably knows whether he went or not. We don't. I, you know, we gave Michael Cohen an opportunity to, you know, turn over documents that would have proved, you know, whether he was there or was not. He did not do that. But I just today still, I don't know. But you sound skeptical. Are you knowable. are you skeptical that that he was there at that time? What makes me skeptical is that in July of 2016 and October of 2016, Michael Cohen, whose boss and friend is running for the highest office in the land, Michael Cohen leaves the United States twice, once to go just from his own passport, we know, to London, once to go to Italy. And that is, of course, as you know, uh, in a zone where you can move around uh, and have some freedom of movement where passports would not be stamped. And so one, I just wonder why is he, you know, I I don't think if I was running for president, I don't think I would be too happy if my general counsel was leaving the country, you know, during the peak of the campaign. And I also uh, just, again, the, the places that he went in the zone matched up to the dossier it's not out of the realm, um, but it's right. knowable. So you're uh, not you're not skeptical of the story. It sounds like you're suspicious. I want to know more. Just, just yeah. like with most of the facts we've learned, I want to know more. And every place I could go to know more, a wall was put up, or as I said, shovels were taken out, and we were just not able but, to you know pursue it. And and we can but, know more now. That's what's so I think exciting about this. 
But Congressman, you have the power to find out the answer to this question. You could call Michael Cohen. You could demand to yep. see those records. Of course, when he refused, yep. uh, he was not cooperating at that point, and now he is. And I, it just seems like this is such a crucial question to the whole broader issue of whether there was direct collusion or not, that waiting indefinitely for a Mueller report or getting a green light, you don't have to wait for that. You can go and straight I, I to the yeah, cone I don't and think you get the answers gonna, to these questions. Yeah, I don't think you should assume we're going we're to wait uh, on unanswered questions like that. I, I think you're going to see us, you know, as I said, fill in the gaps uh, where they exist, not be redundant. And again, I'll, I'll leave it to Mr. Schiff to, you know, kind of put in the specifics there. But uh, th this is going to be a committee that, you know, does its job. And that's a good thing for accountability uh, that just was not there. Let me just move to one other area of inquiry that is out, I think, not under Bob Mueller's jurisdiction, but is one where you know, there's sort of the most credible evidence of the president himself being implicated in an, in an actual crime, and that is the uh, payoffs to porn stars, to women that the president had affairs with through Michael Cohen, the very specific allegations that Michael Cohen and the head of American uh, media, the owner of the National Enquirer, had said that the president knew about this and knew that it, that it was to affect the outcome of the election, so therefore would be a campaign finance violation. Is that an area that you think should be pursued? Would you say that that should potentially be part of future impeachment proceedings? I think that's propensity evidence, which means that you can use that as evidence. If, if someone acted that way in silencing women, as their stories related to an election, you could probably assume that uh, when it came to not disclosing other things in an election, like dealings with the Russians or other countries, they probably acted the same way. I, I don't think that on its own uh, really warrants you know, pursuing impeachment. I don't think the American people do either. But I also don't think that is the only act Donald Trump committed uh, that violated campaign law. Uh, or other laws, because uh, I just think he's a shadowy operator. And now uh, there's light uh, that, you know, will come to uh, the way that he was acting throughout the whole campaign. And I, not yeah, I believe you women. also I, I think you've also said on another podcast that you believe that the Southern District of New York, which is uh, investigating that case, uh, may have a sealed indictment yeah. of the president. Why do you say that? What makes you think that's the case? Well, when you read, you know, all the, the characters and, and what they did, you know, in this uh, act, uh, he certainly seems to have hands that are just as dirty or if not dirtier uh, than uh, David Pecker uh, or Michael Cohen. And so I, it would not surprise me at all if there was a, a sealed indictment. I would like to see, though, some effort to make sure that the president doesn't escape an indictment because uh, the statute of limitations runs uh, because of a DOJ policy uh, that you know prevents a president from being uh, indicted, and that's a well, fix that Congress uh, could make. You're on judiciary. Is that legislation that you could uh, pass legislation saying I, the I'm president can my, be my indicted? Staff, my staff is pursuing you know how uh, legislation that would allow 
uh, that would make an exception to the statute of limitations if DOJ policy, uh, you know, for the in the interest of the country, uh, like not indicting a city, sitting president. So after the president the leaves office, he could be indicted. Yeah. You can't change yeah. the uh, current DOJ policy. Uh, very, two very last quick. You questions. also, Michael, the reasons you don't want you don't want the pre- you don't want somebody to see their reelection as also. Uh, you know, they're not only winning, they're escaping criminal liability because, you know, right. God knows what they would you know, do to you know, try and win an election with the resources they have at their disposal as a president. Two more quick questions. First, you're on judiciary. Are we going to see Matt Whitaker testifying very shortly before the committee? Yeah, I, I know Chairman uh, Nadler uh, is pursuing that and has not gotten the cooperation that he wants. And again, that may mean that you know he's going to have to be subpoenaed. Uh, but I, I think Matt Whitaker, uh, and I've, I've said this from the, the beginning, uh, was hired for all the wrong reasons. He was brought in essentially as an assassin to take out the Mueller uh, investigation, and we need to understand uh, just you know what conversations he had with the president while he was the chief of staff to Jeff Sessions, uh, and you know what promises, uh, if any, he's made uh, to the president. And finally, are you still considering running for president? Yes, yes, I am. Uh, I'm going to do my <laughs> so job. So, when are you going to announce, you know, or would you like to do so well, right now? <laughs> that's right. Uh, well. I'm going to do my job in the first uh, 100 days. I, you know, also am going to continue to go, you know, to the places where you go to, you know, first of the nation states of Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina. And I still believe that, you know, the country wants someone who believes that the promise of America is if you work hard, you do better for yourself, dream bigger for your kids, but also know that it's not fulfilled everywhere right now. And just coming up in a family where my dad was a cop and my mom still works today, uh, I saw it work for us, but... I think I have an idea of how we can make it work let me, everywhere. That's let why me ju- I do it. I've got two kids under two. That's probably <laughs> why I wouldn't do it. But, uh, no, I, I'm still very much uh, pursuing uh, that decision. You might be the first uh, presidential candidate with two kids uh, in, in, in diapers. <laughs> let me just ask you uh, one very quick. We hope that they, hope they develop out of that. All right, let, let me just, I know we've got to go, but are you more likely to run than, uh, than not to run at this point? I'm going to make a decision uh, soon. Uh, again, I, I think I could make a difference, but I also think I could win. Uh, and most importantly, I want to see our country come together. But, you know, yesterday I held my daughter on the House floor for three hours, you know, as Nancy Pelosi became Speaker. And I had great appreciation for what my wife does for 24 hours with a 19-month-old and a nine-week-old. And taking your family through that, you know, is a lot. But they're up for the sacrifice. And, you know, we're getting close to making a decision. Well, we're up for having you back when you are an announced presidential candidate, and then we yes. can really dig deep into uh, yes. your thoughts on the world. And you could even have your kids on your lap if you like. <laughs> right. That's right. So uh, what do you make of that? I, I heard a lot of news in that interview. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think on, on a number of fronts. I think, uh, first of all, uh, it was interesting that he said that sort of straight off the bat, the committee would pursue uh, money laundering allegations against uh, Trump and the Trump right. business, specifically mentioning Deutsche Bank, which uh, was the yeah. lender to Trump and has been, of course, caught up in, in a lot of other money laundering allegations in the past. That's an area that we don't think Mueller has necessarily pursued aggressively. Uh, so that's a whole new line of inquiry. 
Right. But, you know, that, this strikes me as as problematic on multiple fronts. Yes, there's uh, lots of grounds to be suspicious about uh, some of the transactions the Trump organization has been involved in and certainly the prior comments from Don Jr. and Eric Trump about all the money they make from Russia is, uh, you know, a, a red flag right there. But does anybody think they're going to get cooperation on that? The idea that the House Intelligence Committee can do a really thorough investigation of uh, Trump's finances, getting records from the Trump organization. They're, they're going to resist a subpoena on that. Uh, the Deutsche Bank, uh, that's getting into quite a morass. I don't see uh, any easy or quick resolution of that. That strikes me as a prescription for an investigation that's going to go on for the rest of well, the Well, yeah, the problem is he talked about there being probable cause, a legal term. If there truly was probable cause that crimes were committed, it might be easier to, to get some of this up because of the public pressure that, that would ensue. But at this point, they're just trying to connect dots. There's some smoke. Uh, and to mix metaphors, they're trying to connect out. So I agree with you. I think it's going to be tough. And, and same thing goes for other areas that he talked about pursuing. I thought it was interesting that he talked about wanting to pursue the whole uh, Saudi question in the yep. wake of the killing of Jamal Khashoggi and MBS's involvement in that and talking about whether Trump has been uh, compromised by his financial dealings with the Saudis. But there again, they haven't connected the dots and it's going to be hard to get that kind of um, evidence. So I agree with you. I think that uh, th there are a lot of different avenues to pursue. The question is, can they actually hit pay dirt? And will they be pursuing too many of them, spreading themselves too thin? And I think maybe Adam Schiff will think they need to be more focused on where they think they can really make a difference. It strikes me that uh, uh, what Swallow is trying to do here was strike a balance between you know that part of the Democratic caucus that wants to really aggressively pursue the Trump organization and, and the president uh, and the administration and those who are cautioning that uh, this could have some political peril if it looks like they're hounding Trump unnecessarily or just trying to score political points. Um, it's a really interesting balancing act. I think Swalwell went further than I expected him to go in talking about uh, the investigations. I thought he'd be a little more tempered and moderate on that, but he wasn't. So he's staking out ground. Yeah. And you know, as he made clear, he's also seriously thinking about running yeah, for and, president. And one, yeah. last, one last point on this, and I think evidence of him kind of being more balanced is he was pretty clear that he doesn't think the Democrats, and he's also on the House Judiciary Committee, should pursue the Cohen illicit payoffs uh, to porn stars, pursue that as grounds for impeachment, that that would be the Democrats kind of overplaying their hand um, and that would not be a winner for Democrats politically. He's obviously seeing some of this through that political prism uh, because he is seriously considering running for president. And clearly the Democratic base wants investigations on all fronts, but he also has to tread carefully. Right, right. And just sort of final point on that, it sounds like he is <laughs> planning on running for president and the ground he's going to stake out, his one calling card here is he's the Russia guy. He's the guy who's going to say, I investigated Donald Trump's uh, Russia connections. I investigated his finances. I know this issue. And um, he's that, you know, that's the niche he's going to try to carve out in a very crowded democratic field. Yeah. Where, by the way, these issues 
did not really play all that big during the midterm elections. They tended to be bread and butter issues like health care. Um, so yeah. it, it may be that he's uh, placing his money on on Bob Mueller and what Bob Mueller <laughs> actually produces in his report, right. uh, because if there really are serious serious evidence of collusion, then he might be in a better position than than if it's a more of a muddled uh, right. result. And now for a uh, another perspective from the Republican side of the field, we have our colleague. John Ward, who knows uh, Republican Party politics uh, as well as anybody, talking about the uh, extraordinary uh, statement uh, op-ed from uh, Mitt Romney this week. We are now joined by John Ward. Uh, John, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you, guys. Great to be on. We were all fascinated by uh, Mitt Romney's op-ed in the Washington Post uh, the other day, in which he clearly uh, staked out ground as the anti-Trump Republican. Uh, Maybe that's going a little too far, but he did say the president's uh, character falls short. And uh, he wrote some pretty extraordinary things saying that he wouldn't comment on every Trump outrage, but would and these are his words, speak out against significant statements or actions that are divisive, racist, sexist, anti-immigrant, dishonest, or destructive to democratic institutions. Well, I mean, Mitt Romney had two choices, and most people who are elected to the Senate, which is still predominantly male, but so most people, you know, elected to the Senate come in, and I think the most famous example of this in recent memory is Hillary Clinton. She came in, she kept her head down, she paid deference to more senior senators, and she uh, learned the ropes of the institution. That's um, not keeping your head down, what Romney did. This is not keeping his head down. And I think, you know, the, the reason is that the moment is a very different moment. You know, I think for somebody like Mitt Romney, he feels the stakes are pretty high right now. And I think he does have a pretty visceral dislike for Donald Trump. Okay, so let's get let's let's cut to the chase. Let's cut to the chase, John. Is this about Mitt Romney's legacy or is this about Mitt Romney running for president or both? Well, I think I think it's too early for to talk about him running for president. And I think much more so than somebody like we were just talking before we came on about Cory Gardner from Colorado. He's somebody who could end up joining with Romney if things really go south for Trump. And there's debate over impeachment in the Senate. Um, Somebody like Cory Gardner, he's in his 40s. He has to worry much more about his political prospects. Romney doesn't have to worry so much about that because he's older and he's accomplished more. I do still think he would jump at the chance to run for president, though. And so it's in the conversation. But so much has to happen between now and then. Uh, between now and 2020 or 2019, in the next year, really, All right, well, for, for that to happen. I, it, it, I think it's just premature. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't want to make too much of this idea that, that this was about a possible presidential run. But I will, just the last thing on this, this particular point is, when we had a conversation yesterday in which you made the point that it was actually Mitt Romney who made it part of the conversation, not in that op-ed piece, but when he was interviewed by Jake Tapper on CNN afterwards, that he brought it up. He did. Uh, Tapper hadn't even gotten to his question about whether Romney was thinking about running for president. And Romney brought it up and said, I'm not going to endorse or support Trump 
yet in 2020. I'm going to wait and see what other options there are that are available. And so, yes, he has he has set himself up in an adversarial role to Trump. And if things go very badly for Trump over the next six to 12 months, that does make him one of the kind of first options for Republicans if they want to turn to somebody else, along with somebody like John Kasich. This kind of sort of seeming calculation, however, that is what irritates a lot of Republicans about Trump who or about Romney, who think that he's always been sort of uh, too calculating. Well, my look, my cynical take on this is that Romney uh, was being a little disingenuous here. He starts out the op-ed by saying the Trump presidency made a deep descent in December, and he talks about the resignation of Mattis and and Kelly and uh, the president's thoughtless claim that America has long been a sucker in world affairs, all defining the presidency down. That's true and certainly resonates with a lot of much of the the Washington establishment, Republican Party establishment. But what he doesn't mention was something else that happened in December that I think probably made a much bigger difference. And that was the stock market going seriously south. And that's something that affects immediately and hits the donor class of the Republican Party, the big you know, fat cats, billionaires who pour tens of millions of dollars into these super PACs that help all the Republican senators get elected and House members as well. And I think that that's what's really spooked the Republican donor class. And they're looking for somebody to reflect their anxiety. And Romney is seizing that moment. I mean, I agree that it spooked the donor class, but I don't think that I agree that that's the only reason or even the main reason why Romney did this. It may have been part of the overall impetus for him, but I I think he's for a long time when he asked Trump to endorse him in 2012 had a a really strong dislike for Donald Trump in part based just on personal style. And, you know, Romney is like the most squeaky clean human being in American politics in some time. He's like, leave it to Beaver. And I think Donald Trump just, disgusts him. And I, and so I think there's all of that. There's all of the sort of obvious things about Trump that offend people who care about the constitution and institutional norms and, and democratic norms. And I think that's part of it too. Well, let's ask, let let me ask you about that because what do you think Mitt Romney is going to do beyond, you know, just sort of the sort of gauzy rhetoric about Trump's character because he could just sort of hold his nose and vote with him all the time, effectively being an ally when it comes to policy. How is he actually going to take on Trump beyond the occasional speech or interview with a reporter? And what impact uh, would he have if that's all he does? I mean, because he could end up he could he could end up like I mean, we saw this with with uh, Jeff Flake. I mean, toward the end on Kavanaugh, he took some positions that that mattered. But uh, for the most part, it was all rhetoric. And, and rhetoric may be important, but would it go beyond that? Well, I guess I would like somebody to tell me what – give me an example of something that Flake did, did where he picked sort of the wrong side in that scenario. Because, I mean, I, there may be examples, but I a lot of times when I heard people criticizing Flake – they were getting mad at him for voting for some conservative right, bill for being, that he for would being have voted a con- for under any president. Right, for, for voting for yeah. Neil Gorsuch, for being a conservative. Yeah, so, and so I think with, with Romney, I think the rubber will probably meet the road when it comes to matters of executive privilege and power 
going head to head with requests, demands for documents and uh, for people to testify on the Hill, kind of his comments on that. When it comes to voting, I'm not sure what there is that it's hard to know, first of all, but I'm not sure what there is that could come up apart from the impeachment debate but, that's right, really going to test this proposition. But that's an important one. I mean, you're citing one that oh, I think course. really that's does matter obvious. and is consequential in the realm yeah. of investigations into Donald Trump. I think that's the obvious one. I don't know what there is beyond that. You've been talking to some of the Romney people this week about this op-ed. How are they describing it to you and, and what's their take? They describe it as a marker. One person, you know, said this is he's actually multiple people told me he's not running for president, which he reiterated on CNN. And, and they were saying he's not positioning himself to run for president, which, you know, that can be true in the moment in the sense that he believes he's not. But I also think you have to just sort of conclude that anytime he does something like this, it's in the background of his thinking, maybe oh, even yeah. subconsciously. Look, but probably, everybody, probably everybody who runs for president believes they should have been president or they should be president. And I'm sure that's never changed for Mitt Romney, just as it's never changed for John yeah, Kerry I, or I, Hillary Clinton. They all believe that, uh, you know, they should have won. And uh, and if given another opportunity in which they think they can win, uh, they will go for it. Yeah. And some people like to just call out these statements as just unmitigated BS. And there's no nuance to it. I actually think a lot of times there is more nuance to it. And a lot of it boils down to psychology, right? And how we convince ourselves of things that we don't actually believe. But nonetheless, they're saying that this is a marker. He wanted to set out his principles upon entering Washington. And uh, even if it would be politically disadvantageous to him, he wanted to speak up for well, what me, he believes is right. Yeah, let me just ask yeah. you, John, about the, the political disadvantage that, that may cause for him. And actually, you put it very well in the piece that we published on Yahoo News yesterday. Romney's op-ed was also an act of commitment in that he has now locked himself into an adversarial relationship with Trump. Rather than giving himself room to accommodate the president, Romney has limited his own flexibility and narrowed the potential roads he could travel in Trump's Washington. So was this possibly a not the shrewdest move politically for Romney? It could turn out to, to be to his disadvantage. Absolutely. There is some risk involved here. So it's not an either or. It's both and because there are political advantages for him as well. But there are political risks. And, you know, so often our political debate is either or and not both hand. A lot of times things are complex and, and both can be true. So, yes, there are political risks if Trump sort of consolidates power, if the economy ticks up, if things go better, if Mueller doesn't come out with much, then, you know, Romney's sort of isolated, probably. But if things go badly, then there is an upside politically there for Romney, as well as the fact that he's from a state. He's a newly elected senator. He's not up for re-election for six more years. And he's from a state that is not real enthusiastic about Donald Trump, even though it is conservative. So it's a red, there's a yeah, poll. It's no, the one red state yeah, there, that really has real problems with Donald Trump. And a lot of that has to do with Donald Trump's character and presumably partly because uh, Utah has a very large Mormon population that's offended by uh, a lot of what Donald Trump does and says. So uh, a lot, last it can't, question. It can't, well, can, can I just say, Mike, it, can't, it sure. cannot be overstated that Mormons remember history and they have a very unique history of being a persecuted religious minority in this country. And so when Donald Trump talked about a Muslim ban, that really 
really upset the Mormon church. And they were the most opposed of any religious minority group or religious group at all, really, probably, certainly among conservatives. They were the most opposed to Trump, I think in large part because of that. I mean, there's character stuff, but I think... The religious persecution is a big, big issue for that. That's fascinating. Really interesting. Um, John, uh, last question. You know, you say uh, Romney has laid down a marker here to oppose Trump. The question is whether other Republican senators are prepared to follow suit. You mentioned Cory Gardner a minute ago. But just as you look at that Republican Senate caucus, who do you see in the ranks that might follow Romney in speaking out against the president and perhaps opposing him on some matters. I think Gardner's a good kind of dark horse in this because he is up for re-election. He's vulnerable. He's in a, you know, moderate state that is a swing state. And his instincts are more along the lines of Romney's than they are along the lines of Trump's. He's certainly much more of like a traditional Republican. He's younger, which puts him in a, in a target demographic that's turned off by Trump as well. And then I think you have to look somebody like Ben Sass. Sass, there's a real question about him still, about whether he's just all talk, sort of like people think of Flake Dean and Bob Corker. But Sass, I don't, it's really hard to know with him. He might have ambitions to run for president. And anytime you have that in the mix as a dominant or, or almost overarching motivation, that can really trip people up in situations like this and they can over calculate and be too cautious and and be afraid to take big risks. And that's what makes Romney's move here interesting. Yes, there are upsides for him in terms of potentially being a presidential contender against Trump, but there's a lot of risk involved here. And that's why, to go back to your point about legacy, Dan, I think no matter what, I think history will probably judge no matter how it turns out in the short term, I think history will judge Republican senators who stand up against Trump, you know, within reason, as long as it's justified, will judge them charitably. And so I think that's got to be part of Romney's let, let me just make one last follow-on point, uh, which will also have the benefit of allowing me to plug your forthcoming book. <laughs> so I'll get to that in, in a second. But uh-huh. one way for Republicans to challenge this president would be to run for president and to primary him. And we've talked about uh, John Kasich. Obviously, we just talked about Romney. Even that's a remote possibility. But you have a book coming out called The End of Camelot, uh, which is the story of... Camelot's End. (laughs) Camelot's End. We'll get it right. All right. We'll get it right. (laughs) All right. Uh, Not a big substantive difference, but stylistically... uh, There is a difference there. So that, of course, is the story of Ted Kennedy challenging Jimmy Carter the last time, I believe, a Democrat uh, challenged a a sitting president uh, in a primary. So we're very, very excited. The book is fascinating, great storytelling, and it's really relevant uh, to this particular moment. So that book comes out, I believe, January 22nd. And we will be we will be plugging it almost as much as we've been plugging Isakov's book. (laughs) Uh, over the last uh, year, Russian I mean, roulette, yeah. the inside story. <laughs> of the, uh, Damn, I didn't want to give you an America. opportunity. Attack on America <laughs> and the election of Donald Trump still available on Amazon. I, I think Russian roulette could could maybe move to the back burner for a few weeks. Yeah, just, you know, just a week or two. Be be a good colleague, Isakov. Uh, all right. All right. Hey, um, anyway, thanks uh, so John, much, John. Okay, thanks. Good talking. All to right, you guys. take care. 
Thanks to Congressman Eric Swalwell and Yahoo News' John Ward for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. And be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. Talk to you next week.